Your art was the prettiest art of all the art. Welcome to Magic Camp. This is a podcast about art and power for anyone with a little bit of extra time after school. I'm Paul Anderson. I'm Ben Anderson. Hello, campers. Welcome, welcome. It's been a bit of a minute. It's been a minute since our last episode um, about the great Vincent Van Gogh. Um, And Ben, I've got something pretty cool planned for us. What's your familiarity with uh, the great Caravaggio? Uh, I could... Probably make a good guess if you put a, one of his paintings in front of me that it was his because of his distinctive mm. style. Um, right. And other than that, I'd probably talk about you and your affinity for him. Uh, ah, right. But, but I'm pro, pro Caravaggio, um, Italian. Definitely. Uh, you like it, the spicy meatball and high drama, right. high contrast yep. paintings. Yep, you got it. Um, yeah, I think if you've heard of him, you probably know him as, uh, a late Renaissance kind of early Baroque, uh, painter. Um, and he's not necessarily part of the, the, that top tier of Renaissance painters that everybody has heard of, but anybody who's done a little bit of art history has probably heard that Caravaggio is better than the rest, better than all of them, which is a case that is arguable, but I would probably agree with. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And I do think he's a genuinely interesting, fascinating painter. Um, I think there is some, probably some misconceptions and some hype surrounding some of the things that we, uh, have already discussed on this show relating to the sort of, uh, mad genius, the titillating details of his, of his life. Um, and I want to go into those things eventually, uh, but they're not the place that I necessarily want to begin um, and thank you for sharing your, your background a little bit. I always wonder about what they tell, what they tell you, uh, you artsy fartsy types in, in art school about these different people. Um, but you're right. So I first encountered Caravaggio, contrary to what you may think, Ben, not when I was, uh, a junior in college studying abroad, but I actually saw several of his paintings at a traveling exhibition my freshman year in college at the Art Institute of Chicago. Hmm. Um, So I was a freshman at DePaul University, which is where I went for my first year of college. I was taking a New Testament class with a really cool priest, um, cool young priest, who gave us extra credit to go to an art museum and write about a painting, which, you know, like the dork that I was and the amount of free time that I had, uh, you know, between going to the library and eating bagels by myself in the cafeteria... Um, that seemed like a a pretty fun thing to do. So I went and there was, you know, when you go to a museum and you see that there's some special exhibit happening, um, that was apparent though. I had no frame of reference for anything. It was, I think it was my first time in a museum ever, um, in an art museum. Maybe, maybe we went once when like we got dragged into the city, like, uh, to, to walk down Michigan, Michigan Avenue and go to the Nike store. Um, (laughs) but Um, but I went in there and it was apparently a big, I could tell it was a big deal because people were were crowding around like four or five different paintings and 
One of them, if you scroll down to your uh, the bottom of your, your uh, paintings links here, Ben, it was the Supper at Emmaus. So if you open that one up, that's one of Caravaggio's, well, one of his many famous paintings. Yes. And the thing that struck me about it, which maybe is striking you as well, given that I didn't know shit about painting, or well, and still don't, was why so we have we have the three disciples right or three disciples this is a this is portraying the story of after christ's resurrection he goes and has he has some uh you know some dinner with his friends and what's interesting to you about this painting ben um i don't know i think the uh that it's like a a tableau where they're all frozen in the middle of an action is uh heightened in a sense i haven't seen where they like they it seems like they're on a stage huddled together on a stage yeah in the middle of acting something out um uh, yeah i mean the the dramatic of the light and dark and the foreshortening and stuff that's right what jumps out to me absolutely and that's your response as an educated viewer for myself at 18 I thought two things. One, damn, this looks so real. Two, why is Jesus so fat? <laughs> hmm. And I actually don't know the question answer to that question. Uh, Caravaggio did a lot of really weird stuff for for ostensibly seemingly no reason. He looks like but Adam, you, uh, what's his face from War on Drugs? He does. Although, Adam Grand... Yeah, better hairline, he, but... For sure, Adam Granduschel. Uh-huh. Um, so he did a lot of stuff like this, which was somewhat provocative to the eye of an average viewer who would have, at the time that he was painting, been either you know some one of his rich patrons or the lumpen, the the peasant folk who would have been going into the churches and learning about the Bible through Caravaggio's paintings, which is. Uh, of the many functions during the Renaissance and the late Renaissance was was the one of the main ones, which was as an actual form of of biblical education. So we'll get to that in a second. But that's just to say that I encountered Caravaggio not knowing who he was, wrote a paper about him, not picking out any interesting details other than that Jesus was fat. And three years later, when I was studying abroad in Rome or in Italy, went to Rome and actually had basically a professor who was like a Caravaggio, I wouldn't say scholar, but he was, he was, he knew, he loved him and took us basically all around the city to see the, most of the paintings of Caravaggio that were in Rome, all of which are actually still in their original places. So the, the paintings that are not in museums are still in the churches where they were originally commissioned for, um, which is, a really cool way to experience them and you can so you just kind of weave and meander around the streets and and pop into one of any thousand churches and there might be uh, a Caravaggio in one of the side chapels which is a pretty crazy thing to experience and a great way to like uh you know have a good experience of art that that is hard to hard to live up to ever since um but that being said and, and I couldn't really necessarily tell you what about those paintings when I first saw them in college. And, and then again, when I was 
you know, later in college, what was so compelling to them about me. I do think part of it had to do with a certain level of devotion that I was bringing to the viewing experience um, that I, you know, as like a religious 20-something was really, really desperately looking for a way to uh, muster up some some mm. get, spiritual verve. Get back that um, camp feeling. That's right. Get that camp high. And and, it, and for a second, it did, it do, these paintings do actually provide that, mm-hmm. which I want to get to. But there's a lot more to talk about that I think is really interesting about Caravaggio. Um, and the first thing being that it's not actually his name. His name isn't Caravaggio. That's actually kind of a bummer. It's one of those like details you're like, oh man, that's that sucks. <laughs> Caravaggio is actually the name of the city where he was born. So uh, his real name, that's right, D. Caravaggio. So Michelangelo was oh. his first name, and you couldn't have two of them. <clears throat> Trademark. So I like to say he's the second best Michelangelo, uh, third being Michelangelo Bonarotti, first being Michelangelo from the Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> and he also couldn't use his middle name because that was also trademarked. Chef Barbie. Was it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So um, just great Italians. Right. Uh, so Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio of Caravaggio, which was a tiny little town in northern Italy. And he was born in basically kind of, like I said, the Renaissance was something that had already been happening for 200 years or so. Michelangelo was near the end of his long, illustrious, um, sexy career uh, of, of you know, being doted upon by popes. Um, Raphael was, uh, was still painting toothless, uh, you know, kitschy, kitschy things all over Rome. Just kidding. I, I know that you don't feel the same way. Um, but yeah. he did, he did, they do contrast each other pretty starkly. So yeah. Caravaggio basically comes of age as a painter around the time that the counter-reformation is coming into full swing. Uh, whoop then whoop. as, as a practicing, uh, <laughs> as a practicing Calvinist, can you tell me a little bit about <laughs> the, uh, about the reformation, uh, particularly in particular, the, uh, um, emphasis on idolatry or lack thereof. Hmm. Well, yeah. So the Reformation, you've got a lot of pushback. Uh, this is too much to get into, but it, even... No, I uh, think you should. I think you should. Just the headlines of it or the publicity of it, of a challenge to the authority of Rome and uh, the centers of power in the Catholic universal church um coming out of martin luther in germany and protesting on you know uh theoretical grounds kind of using like a biblical theoretical spearhead um our argument of like spearhead to to challenge that authority and to yeah uh to i don't know the the net effect being displacing all the authority that was centered in Rome or accumulated right. Rome up to that point. Um, right. And so any any and every theoretical point or biblical theological point that could be taken up as a weapon in that fight uh, would be done, you know, would be taken up on terms of 
orthodoxy and heresy. So mm-hmm. when it comes to the lavishness and the image richness um, that was identified with Rome in the Catholic Church, it was a great counterpoint to what Luther and the Reformationists were doing of um, getting rid of all this um, uh, oh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the lavish and the the yeah. lavishness and the idolatry and things that were not um, opulence. Yeah, opulence. Thank you. That were not right. firmly staked upon the sort of new center of authority or or what they were going to stake all their theo- theoretical claims on of just kind of an austere, um, right. like the- theological biblical. Uh, right. essentialism, I guess. Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Yes. Right? Which means no fat chicks. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I almost didn't say it. Um, we should cut that out. Uh, no. Um, you know, Scripture only, right? That's it. That's the only source of wisdom, of information about about God or, or about Jesus. Um, was emphasized in the Reformation. And that's uh, a point that I want to focus on there because a reason, a way, a way that the Counter-Reformation responded to this, to this critique, uh, which they did not respond with compromise, that's, that's for sure, or with any level of uh, kind of backing down in any way. Um, so the critique to the Sola Scriptura um, doctrine is that that basically only that that scripture is only comprehensible to the literate right and so the catholic church had the foothold on um basically the entire underclass and working class of christendom right because they could say these people can't read and we need these images to actually communicate these religious ideas um, so on one hand, you could view the Counter-Reformation as something that was staked in a genuine uh, attempt to, um, and this would be the, the kind of Pollyanna-ish view of the whole thing and what I was kind of taught at the time, um, that all of this for, was for the sake of the, the furthering of the glory of, of Christianity, right? And to spread it to more people and to uh, use it as a, a means, a delivery system of, beauty as a delivery system of, of doctrine, basically. Um, another way of looking at it, and uh, I think this is a fairly common view as well, is that it was a form of control and a form of propaganda, right? That the Counter-Reformation was the greatest propaganda blitz um, in, in history, essentially the first time that it ever happened, that that any hegemonic power was capable of, of putting forth so many images that um, secured and uh, furthered its, its control, right? Because the spiritual power that these images had actually had a direct effect over mm-hmm. the devotion that the parishioners and the congregations um, actually had, right? Um, and the money that they gave to the church and the, the un- unswerving devotion to, um, to those things and, and to in the battle between Protestantism and Catholicism. 
mm-hmm. right? So that's important to understand about Car- Caravaggio is that he came into that, um, into that boom time, and it produced like some in like we've talked about before quite a lot of hack work, um, and Caravaggio himself kind of cut his teeth as a imitating hack working sort of just you know mason-like painter which is essentially the way that painters were operating at this time it was completely uh transactional and devoid of of devotion right Mm -hmm. um which is something you can kind of feel sometimes when you see a mediocre renaissance painting it's like this this is uh, this does nothing for me right Mm -hmm. um and not just because i'm a you know living in in the 21st century but because it was produced by somebody who was just trying to get a meal, right? Which was Caravaggio's Caravaggio's game for a while. And in that time, he spent a lot of, well, he, he spent his, his life in the shadows, right? Living in the underclass of Rome, which was a tremendously dangerous city, violent um, compared to, or uh, outside of the Vatican and outside of the halls of power that were scattered throughout Rome. So as he began to secure smaller commissions for private homes and collections, um, he became more embroiled in various petty scandals and sort of uh, disputes over honor and that type of crap. So think of Caravaggio as a kid from your hometown who was really aggressive and hated being told that uh, he hated the any accusation that he was not as smart as anybody else or as talented as anybody else and goes to Hollywood to become a screenwriter to prove to everybody in his hometown that they were wrong about him Hmm. and he actually does it Right, okay. like I thought you were going to say he, more like he got drafted by the MLB or something. <laughs> that's that's accurate, and I uh, I can relate. Um, <laughs> just like the worst guy in your town, like uh-huh. the biggest asshole you can possibly imagine, but incredibly talented, which is actually probably quite rare. And he goes to Hollywood and sells a script for like five hundred thousand dollars, like on his first attempt. And then just like starts churning them out. That would be basically what Caravaggio is. And also along the way, he develops a coke problem and like starts like get, gets embroiled with the wrong people and accidentally ends up killing somebody, um, which is actually what Caravaggio did. Um, and he, uh, that's one thing that people kind of focus on is the fact that he was wanted for murder for the latter three years of his career and was basically um, career meaning life and was basically on the lamb while he was painting some of his um, most popular paintings which is pretty nuts but the titillating details are like I said exactly that and only half of the story and it's easy to get caught up on those things Um, so do you have any questions so far, Ben? I'm talking a lot. Uh, pimp question? He question actually mark? was. Yeah. Yeah, he was a pimp. 
Um, or there was some speculation that he was a pimp. So that's probably a good segue into what aspects of his work were so controversial and compelling at the same time. So wait, actually, real quick, just to clarify mm -hmm. what you're saying with the Counter-Reformation, you're placing placing him in the context of, which I hadn't really thought about, um, basically in response to the Reformation and their kind of biblical austerity and their anti-image, Sola Scriptura, philosophy. It was boom time for... Uh, any type of religious propagandist and especially for artists who had a lot of work to do in producing the, the imagery that would uh, yeah, b- build up the counter-reformation and bolster the, yeah. the church's authority and, and, and power over the masses. Yeah, exactly. That was maybe, I didn't maybe make that clear. I no, went off on no that, you on did. I just, I just hadn't placed them in that context before. So that's... No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, so... Caravaggio is trying to make it, right? He's producing paintings that are getting him some attention, right? Um, but he hasn't necessarily come into into flourishing or into what it has come to be known as his distinctive style. Um, so you bring up the fact that he was uh, a total pimp um, because there's some speculation that he actually was. So if you actually look in that list there of paintings um, and click on the death of the virgin um uh let's see where is that one which is i believe one of the only paintings of his that is in the louvre if you're interested in that unimportant detail um but of course we have here the um dead virgin mary um and there are a couple things to note about this and berger points this out as lo- along with a couple other writers. But the first thing to note is that the woman who is portraying the dead Virgin Mary is A, a prostitute, and B, actually dead. <laughs> so, and that's not necessarily unique. Um, there were people who would use corpses for other other reasons. Michelangelo was famously known to go to the morgue and... Um, study dead bodies to get a better handle on human anatomy Um, but the fact that he portrayed um, well I can also go off in another direction with this but Berger says that what was in part was so offensive about this painting to people was the fact that she doesn't appear to just be play acting as a dead person but it's fairly obvious and would be obvious to a viewer at this time that she was actually dead compared to the way that other people were yeah. romanticizing and, and glamorizing. She's not like sw- swooning or like right. fainting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you, and, and you can see her feet. So that's super scandalous. Yep. For sure. That's another good point. Um, but he had a reputation and was one of many painters who did this, but... All of his models at the time were, for the most part, people who were um, living in the slums like he was, right? So he was portraying the lowliest, um, the prostitutes, the poorest, the beggars, the, you know, whoever um, in all of his paintings. And it was fairly obvious to the people who were viewing these paintings 
that this was the case, right? So there was enough of a kind of small town vibe, even in Rome, that what he was doing was fairly obvious to the people looking at the paintings. Um, so that was kind of the first way he started to kind of thumb the nose, his nose a little bit at his patrons, which kind of became his, his MO, was as he would accrue commissions, right? The more commissions he would get, the more popularity he would earn, the kind of more forceful his, his um, rebellions would become, his aesthetic rebellions would become. Um, and so let's see if I can come up with another example here. So Madonna of the Pilgrims is another important one, and you pointed that out. So this is, you know, just a painting that is some pilgrims who are, who have come to the Virgin Mary's house, which is a, an old, like, apocryphal legend that her house was, uh, carried by angels to Rome and and pilgrims would then come and you know pray to her so that's ridiculous yeah I know right it was carried to America where all the (laughs) yeah yeah. Joseph Smith lived there with all the pre-Israelites or whatever they're called that's right yep some some people they, they stopped in Rome first though people don't know that uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so, one thing you noticed in the last painting was Mary's feet. If you look at this painting, the first thing you would notice if you were a person in the church looking at this painting is the big grubby feet sticking out of the front of the frame, right? That's mm-hmm. the first thing your eye sees is the bottom of a peasant pilgrim's foot, right? which at the time, again, was incredibly uncouth, was a, a, a source of shame to not have shoes, um, was, and let alone to depict it in the form of a painting, right? So now hopefully you're getting a sense of the type of thing that, you know, in, in a more pious sense that Caravaggio was capable of um, and he, that he, he kind of feet. started out doing. He's he was in foot, the feet. He was a foot guy. He, definitely a foot guy. No judgment. Um, Nope, but also likely a pimp. And that was one of the ways that he got into trouble, arguably, was the prostitutes who he was putting in his paintings, he was paying, right? And also kind of keeping around, right? And protecting from other dangerous people, which is basically what a pimp does. So essentially, Caravaggio was, on one hand, making paintings for cardinals in the Vatican and in the other, you know, protecting prostitutes and also sleeping with them, um, along with young men and people all throughout the city. So again, titillating details about Caravaggio, they abound and we could go on and on and on. Um, but let me gather my, gather my notes here for a second. Um, do, 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 do. what do we make of Caravaggio? Um, well, let me look at Berger here for a second. Sorry, I kind of lost my place. Going off of that kind of note that I just mentioned about the way he depicted the poor, um, Berger says, he was the first painter of life as experienced by the Pololaccio, 
the people of the back streets, les sans the lumpen proletariat, the lower orders, those of the lower depths, the underworld. There is no word in any traditional European language which does not either denigrate or patronize the urban poor in its naming. That is power, right? Which is a great way that he often does of pointing out um, even just the way that language, the way that we are conditioned to see see the world and the relationships between things um, is uh, frames frames our understanding of human life, right? And Caravaggio understood this, right? So his painting reflected a radical shift in what could be portrayed um, in a religious painting or in any painting for that matter. So another thing that Berger points out in one of his ways of seeing essays is that most paintings in the oil painting and Renaissance period, um, especially of poor people or, or of the poor, were meant to flatter the observer, right? Were meant to flatter the rich patron or the rich uh, religious person who was looking at the painting to say, look how the lower people live and how you don't have to live, right? Mm -hmm. And how, uh, how they got themselves into the situation. Whereas Caravaggio flipped it and wrote from the perspective of, or painted from the perspective of actually being one of them, right? Rather than painting down um, and portraying them with a smile or with, or with uh, a sort of noble, virtuous piety. Um, Caravaggio knew that that wasn't actually how life was in the back streets, in the crowded, dark, cramped spaces that became his backdrops for his paintings. So another thing that you noted when you looked at that first painting was what um, Caravaggio is rightfully known for in many ways is his use of light and dark, which uh, a fancy word for that, you know what it is? I sure do. Why don't you go ahead and tell the campers? Chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. Um, remember that. That's going to be on the quiz after this. And I was um, just watching a Westworld episode by that name. Really? Yep. They have a couple that are named in like classical art terms. Contrapposto, Chiaroscuro. Nice. Is it a new? Is it the new season? I'm rewatching it so I can watch the new season. Have you All Have right. you seen it? No, I haven't. It's okay. It's all right. You, you, it's worth watching. Cool. Go on. Okay. So, chiaroscuro is something that Caravaggio is basically the first person to make a thing, right? Or to use to dramatic effect, which is the uh, intense contrast between dark and light uh, to sort of highlight the narrative action or emotional drama in, in a painting. Right. And what Berger also points out um, is that chiaroscuro was not necessarily just a, a, an aesthetic feature that Caravaggio discovered, um, but a function of his life. Right. Because this is the, the spaces that he's depicting, these kind of uh, lightless, windowless, decrepit sort of tomb like spaces mm -hmm. would have been what what the masses or the urban poor actually lived in, 
right? So there's almost a fear of open space that is portrayed in, in all of Caravaggio's paintings, mm-hmm. a, com- a comfort in cramped, dark spaces. Um, so chiaroscuro, along with the sort of staged element, these things absolutely contribute to the intense narrative um, sort of drama of the paintings, along with his incredible sort of his just sheer talent of depicting human features and human emotion. Um, and uh, I can't remember, there's a term for this too, but most of his paintings, the best ones at least, all portray the moment before something happens. So the, the people are essentially suspended just before the moment where the shit hits the fan, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, once again, you could make a case that Caravaggio's ability to capture this on the canvas was connected to the fact that he was basically living it on a daily basis, where he's uh, he's beating up waiters for serving him soggy artichokes. He's Ugh. getting in sword fights with people uh, for slandering his reputation. He's running from you know running from police. He's he's dodging people who he owes money, um, and is essentially using his paintings to to portray those situations right and to show the rest of the world what's actually going on in in the slums right mm-hmm. okay so let's take a beat here um before caravaggio kills anybody the big commission that he gets and the paintings that he's probably most known for are the life of saint matthew right this is a three painting cycle that goes from the calling of saint matthew to the what's it called inspiration inspiration and the martyrdom of matthew yep. so if you open up the calling of saint matthew maybe you've seen this before it's one of these these are probably my three favorite yeah they're amazing um so we don't have to get into all this and and break down every every element of it but once again, we see the distinctive Caravaggio features, which is a sort of huddled mass of downtrodden people around a table with coins in front of them gambling, right? One man is slouched over the table, um, not even looking up. The guy with the finger on his chest and the big beard who's saying, me? That's Matthew, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the corner, we have... Uh, St. Peter and old JC, right? Yeah, um, JC's got a chin strap too. I don't understand. I, he it looks like he's wearing like a, a helmet of some kind. Yeah. But I don't really understand what I think it's also supposed to be kind of a shadow. Yeah. But, well, it's a, I mean it's amazing because of how little is there. Like you're just getting a tiny fraction of his face and his hand and that like implies the whole figure which is really cool and the rest is lost in darkness right yep and you know a painting like this would have been inconceivable to depict this moment and to basically cover up cover up three-fourths of jesus's body right who's supposed to be the focal point of a painting like this is 
crazy, but it has so much more power because of that. Mm-hmm. It's so much more dynamic, and you have the finger. I love the finger. It's like fi- I can see that when I close my eyes because <laughs> it's just like limply. It, it you know it's very curved and poised. Um, yeah, just like uh, raising by the wrist. Um, yeah, it's, it's very memorable. It's pretty good. And actually, one more thing. Well, you see the light coming in from the window there. Two cool features. If you look down at Jesus' feet, down at the bottom there, you'll see that they're actually turned basically out the door, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look there, they're, they're pointing in the other direction as if he's already walking out. He's already leaving. Um, which conveys a level of movement, but also of confidence and inevitability in the action, which is which is very compelling. Um, one thing I'll also note um, is that that slant of light, right? That window, that kind of, the window is open out of frame, mm-hmm. and the light comes in and falls right on Matthew's face. I've seen this painting, I've seen the chapel that it's in, and it's on the left side and on the wall on the other side of it or perpendicular to it is an actual window mm-hmm. where light where light comes in and follows that trail of light right so that's pretty amazing right and and speaks to the fact that paintings like this were made for a specific space Right and for a specific feature and function, um, and you know he he's a good enough painter that it stands alone. You can look at it at it on Wikipedia and still understand it at, at how powerful it is. Um, but the amount of emotional power that something like this can elicit is pretty staggering, right? So you could almost make the case that the cardinals and the and the powers that be who commissioned these paintings got a little more than they bargained for when Caravaggio would come and paint something like this, right? Which was so, when one, emotionally powerful, but also so radically humanizing of the people who it portrayed, right? Mm-hmm. The, the kind of, the slum, the slum lords and the, and the, and the rabble, right? And, and provided for the audience a very true representation of what, the Catholic Church, in many ways, was was not doing for its for its world, right? For its congregations. So it's in one on one hand, it's you know an affirmation of these universal truths, but you could also make the case that it's a condemnation of of the very church that has commissioned the painting, right? Mm-hmm. You catch my drift. Totally. Yeah, it's it's funny how I mean. Um, going back to younger times, how I would have uh, felt about this and, and, you know, reacted really strongly to it. Uh, This motif of, you know, it's the calling of of Matthew. He's here in the tax collector's booth. He's doing his dirty deeds and sinning. And then Jesus comes in and calls him to follow him. And he's got his finger on his chest, who, me? And... You know, it's so clearly depicting like not this you know, 
me, it couldn't be me. Like I'm a worm. I'm nobody. I'm not worthy. Right. And how <clears throat> coming from the opposite angle to me is like a slam dunk of, yeah, baby, this is, this is reformed theology, you know, mm-hmm. solo gratia or whatever it is. Grace alone, you know, we can't, mm-hmm. good deeds won't do you anything. We're all tax collectors and worms. Um, and, uh, I don't know, as wrong as that was, like, there's something that he is capturing here, um, that is still right about it of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, just facing the grubbiness of people, um, mm-hmm. the, the grubbiness of, of yourself. Um, most deaf, but it, just having not thought about it since that time. Uh, it's funny now to think of this as a counter-reformation piece, mm. um, which then again, like you're saying, who knows how effective of a propagandist he was or, you know, because he had his own terms that he was bringing to the painting. Well, yeah, exactly. Which brings me to the next point that I think is crucial to, to know about Caravaggio. So we've talked about the titillating details and the the you know the sexy hard scrabble life that he lived as a as a pimp and and renegade painter um but he was doing bad stuff right he was he was actually driven out of rome at nearly the height of his success because he killed a dude in a duel right and the rumor is that he actually killed the guy by stabbing him in the in the penis in the dick damn and he he severed his carotid artery in doing so or whatever the one in the leg Ooh. is yeah um i thought so, they were supposed to stand back to back and then do 10 paces and flip around well they, i think they were and then it got out of control and it just turned into an all-out brawl Stick, because there yeah. were a couple of different different crews there and so caravaggio quickly had to leave he had to get out of town he heads down south flying down the boot you know trying to get out of Dodge. And I should note that um, as I'm telling these details, I'm trying to get the image out of my head of this really terrible PBS style historical reenactment video that I saw that actually is from a good art video series, which is, which is Simon Shema's Power of Art. But there are these horribly cheesy historical reenactments and the guy who plays Caravaggio is just like so dumb and so, so bad. And so I'm trying not to picture that guy doing all this stuff, um, but it's kind of hard. So I don't know if I've ever tried to picture him before. The only person well, who really comes to my mind is... Um, no, that, that's not even right. I was going to say like the little, the bald guy from uh, Young Pope who's like the very dutiful servant, but he's also a secret alcoholic. But he's not manly enough. Right. Well, this will help, actually, and this brings me to my next point. So go ahead and open up the martyrdom of St. Matthew. And if you can, the um, all the way down at the bottom or near the bottom, head of Goliath. All right. Okay, so both of these paintings, if you 
starting with the martyrdom, which is just a, a, a absolute chaos scene, right? It's, you know, depicting when Matthew was killed by an assassin, and it appears to be taking place in some sort of sexy bathhouse with mm. everybody in their towels or maybe in an alley or something like that. But there's some big cavernous pit in front and it's right before Matthew is about to just be straight up gouged by an assassin's sword. Yep. So if you look over the left shoulder and you can use your little you know magnify tool here. If you look over the left shoulder of Matthew's, or not Matthew, uh, the assassin, left, mm. the, his right shoulder, but stage right. Stage right. The f- see the guy turning towards the action and looking on forlornly at the murder that is about to occur. Yes. That's a self-portrait. Oh, uh, so, what? Yeah. So that's... that's Wait, oh, okay. Was <laughs> looking at the... You're looking on the wrong side. The young, young girl no, looks not, like Eleven from Stranger Things or whatever her name was. Not the little baby, no. Okay. Um... So the bearded fellow over there in the left corner, um, that is Caravaggio depicting himself watching Matthew be murdered, right? Mm-hmm. So self-portraits were not something that was necessarily you know, unique, right? A lot of painters at this time painted themselves into these important scenes and had some message to convey, mm-hmm. but rarely, rarely did they ever incriminate themselves in doing so right other than uh right michelangelo getting flayed at the final judgment oh i forgot about that one well that's a similar it's a similar move right there's also like michelangelo did one where he was it's actually a sculpture um a a lesser known pieta um where he's he's the one lifting uh jesus down from the cross right so it's it's more something like that generally that it's that it's a, there's a repentance involved that there is some incrimination but there's this one even is a little more tame than the next one so if you go to um, the martyrdom of uh, I'm sorry not martyrdom the head of Goliath take a look at the head of Goliath as in the actual head got it that's also a self portrait nice. So we're looking at a severed, decapitated head being held onto by the hair by a young David after killing Goliath. And the head is Caravaggio late in his life after he has committed once again a a senseless act of violence that has got him into trouble. And this painting is the one that he sent to the Vatican, right? So... There are a lot of ways to to think about this. You could think about it as an act of repentance or uh, of self-incrimination or as a plea for pardon from the Pope, which at the end of his life was basically his sole mission, was to paint and to live, well, to, to accrue favor that would... Um, pardon him from the price on his head hmm interesting not unlike i know you're i know you're thinking this i'm taking it from you but uh 
uh, one Keanu Reeves in uh, Constantine trying to make right and and win his soul out of hell. I haven't seen it. What? I hate to say it, I haven't seen Constantine. Okay. Well, you call yourself a Catholic curious and you haven't even seen Constantine. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, <clears throat> that's, okay, so, that's crazy, though. I, n- I never knew that. Right. So that's another thing you have to know about Caravaggio is that, you know, even though a lot of this painting at the time of the Counter-Reformation was done somewhat cynically, as, as Berger would say, that, you know, hack work is, or, or the, the painting that occurs in an economic demand is often performed cynically to both flatter the patron and the viewer and to allow the painter to survive, right? In a way that compromises their artistic integrity. Mm-hmm. But Caravaggio, and you could also make the case that these people you know, probably didn't really believe the things that they were portraying. Or maybe they did, but it's not apparent in the paintings. And with Caravaggio, it was. And you say what you will about the guy. You could say that he was a philandering um, murderer, if you're judgmental like that, um, which he was. But he was working out his own spiritual damnation or salvation in the paintings he was making for millions of people to see. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's what's most compelling about him. I think there are a lot of interesting things about him, but what really stands out and what sticks out is is that intangible quality of of life or death being expressed in all of his paintings, right? That he was he was bringing his full his full depravity and and you know, glory to, to borrow the, um, you know, to go back to our favorite writers, John Calvin and, and the like, um, he was portraying these things in, in the only way he knew how, and he did as a result, change the game, change painting irrevocably. And another kind of cheesy art history thing that people will say when you look at Caravaggio is like, uh, do you like action movies? <laughs> well, take a look at this action, this still from a early action film, right? Which is that these scenes of grotesque violence and drama had never been done before. And they had never been made compelling. They were considered inappropriate and, and blasphemous to depict these things. And yet he found a way to elicit genuine artistic achievement or, or genuine spiritual uh, rapture in, in these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the authenticity or the genuineness of his spirit, you, you can't doubt because of the, the, the energy and the yeah everything that's poured into it. And you want to look at it. You just want to look at it, which is a pretty right. good starting point for a painting. Um, it's a bit like seeing a good action movie or sci-fi movie or something that is just gripping and intense and actually good. Mm-hmm. And you're like, God, I've been watching a lot of really boring shit. Right. <laughs> like, right. so refreshing to just see 
interesting characters where the stakes are high and it's you're not just pretending to care because uh this is important or uh this perspective is interesting or blah 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 right i'm i'm referring to um the movie we were just talking about snowpiercer snowpiercer oh yeah we have to do a whole snowpiercer app yep we should Yep. Um, I should also mention maybe a good place to wrap up the Caravaggio biography here, which I realize I kind of rambled on there for a while. But um, Caravaggio was born or was a child at the height of the plague, um, which is fitting for this current conversation. We haven't we haven't let the cat out of the bag that this occurs in, you know, week two of coronavirus panic. Um and it's, you know, pretty serious times, pretty troubling times. But, you know, some, some art historians and scholars have, have suggested that Caravaggio's ability to paint the dead and paint the grotesque uh, stems in many ways from his very early exposure to, to relentless amounts of, of death that occurred in his family and in his home mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the span of like a couple years because of the plague. You know, which which was isolated, not necessarily, it was widespread, but there were certain parts of Europe that got it a lot worse than others, um, kind of like what we're seeing now. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's another way of saying what I was just thinking of. Uh, it just, you can't fake this familiarity or uh, closeness to death, that you're mm-hmm. cle- clearly looking at somebody who lives around death and is at peace with it and doesn't have the assumption like we all have that you get to live a full, full life with all the phases that you're supposed to have and all the closures and everything to, you know, 90 or a hundred. Sometimes right. you, die, you die when you're 20. Sometimes you die when you're 30 or younger. And sometimes you die horribly. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, we've all had the idea of the arc of progress, you know, pretty well embedded in our ideologies. And it's possible that, you know, that's not going to be the case, that we maybe we'll just loop back to a time when people don't assume that they'll live that long anymore, or, um, right. that they're guaranteed all these things. And the brief blip of the golden era, especially in America, that the boomers enjoyed of having a secure and uh, comfortable lifestyle while not having to risk much <laughs> or, or work that hard. Um, you know, maybe they were just the luckiest generation in the history of humankind and the rest of us mm-hmm. will, will, uh, gravitate more towards the mean of human existence, which is, uh, brutal and mostly horrifying. Sorry. You said it. You You brought it up. Uh. I hope you enjoyed that, campers. Um, No, you're exactly right. That that's what Caravaggio was doing in another in another way, which is that he wasn't glorifying death, and that was also considered a kind of blasphemy. Hmm. But it was. You know, again, once again, actually more spiritually convicting and powerful than what was being done before that, right? So the the push to portray death 
gloriously and with redemption, you could argue, is the very thing that prevented the people from looking the paintings from actually taking stock and appreciating their own lives and their own material existences, right? Yeah, and, and so, yeah. Keep, keep going. going. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. I, that's it. Just that, like, what a true artist does is taking ownership over um, the reading of life as it as it comes to you as is. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, fa- facing the brute realities, but then performing performing a reading and interpretation on it and rendering it into a work of art, basically. Um, and it can only be, it can only be good. It can only, it only works if you're actually handling what's in front of you, what, what the reality is. And I'm not fully ready to articulate that thought, but, um, like that's, that's the artist, the artist mode of, of life, I think is basically understanding that you can take ownership over, (laughs) over the inevitability that you're going to have to interpret and make sense out of the world that's in front of you. Um, right. Rather than letting someone else do it for you or, um, or ignoring parts of it or pretending that, pretending that there's some sort of objectivity aside or outside of you. Um, so, absolutely. yeah, this was the, is this what you were mentioning before? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean it's there's there's not a better time than right now to discuss it to be honest and I'm glad that we're that we did actually talk about Caravaggio today. He's is probably the best painter for a, a time like this. Um yeah, and I think you brought up maybe in the Vincent discussion, I don't know if we fully fleshed it out, but we also in the time since we last spoke not to get too specific about our, uh, you know, political affiliations, but we've seen the one legitimate solution or the legitimate voice who could actually do something and solve these problems with the things he's been saying for 30 years. We've seen him be swiftly rebuked by the American public as it spirals into chaos. and Yeah, or or so we're told. (laughs) I mean... Who well, knows? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean the I, net effect it, is, yeah. It's a little of both. Thwarted, it's hard to, yeah. it's a chicken or the egg scenario, which is, did we decide for ourselves or was it decided for us yep. one way or another? You know, same, you can, same you can go to a bar and hear people talk about, you know, the radicalism of Bernie Sanders and the, the sanity of electing Joe Biden. Again, uh, you can hear that. About it. You can hear that in Seattle. I never heard that here. You don't hear that in Denver? No, but I mean, huh. yeah. I, well, I also I mean, work from home, so well, you're, you <laughs> I'm have not the, around. You have the you have the benefit of being living in a state where Bernie won, so you yeah. can you can you know. Well, well, that being said, they didn't Thir- really calculate all the all the delegates yeah. anyway. Thir- thirteen thirteen percent of Washington's votes were thrown in the trash, right? Something yeah. like that. So, we're now just exacerbating the point. That, I, that we're going to make, which is we have once again run up again, run into the termination of political action in this current moment, right? Not completely, but it's like all of the, you know, more seasoned, 
or seasoned activists and, and organizers are saying, which is that this is the way it goes, right? And all of these movements potentially build steam for something later in the future, but we run up against the limitations of political action in the face of bottomless greed and, and tyranny. Um, mm -hmm. And what do you do at the end of that rope? I think that's, you know, it's hard to separate out with an artist like Caravaggio who was so, uh, you know, so dependent on, on the powers that be for his sustenance as an artist to make this same claim. But for somebody like Vincent, it's the only thing you have left. Mm. It's the only thing you can do. Yep. Yeah, and I hesitate, like, to talk about what that means of, like, is that the ultimate power, uh, the power to interpret and the power to take ownership over the reading of your own life and reading of the world. Um, that's basically an inviolable space, you know, that you can stand your ground and, and have it if you will take ownership over it. Um, cause I'm tempted to say, you know, that, that isn't like an absolute form of power, um, that should never be conceded and it should be taken really seriously. The, the power to like interpret the world in, in spite of that. Right. Um, right. but then again, we use the word power specifically to denote material power and control over resources and we're, sure. <clears throat> and it, I don't want to be trite to say that, you know, if you, if you really are losing all, all material control over the world that you could right. have anything left at the end of that, but also not, not ready to uh, concede that either. So I don't know. Right. No, I hear you. I hear you. Well, this was a light one. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it was good. It super interesting guy. Um, well, also like Vincent, uh, I guess we, we could categorize these last two episodes and maybe another one in our uh, socially dysfunctional, uh, psychologically suspect artist category, who people who you probably wouldn't want to um, mm -hmm. hang out with for very long. I think Vincent would be easier to get along with, to be completely honest. But Caravaggio was not a good dude. Yeah, I think I'd be... More, way more intimidated and scared by Caravaggio and and Vince and I would uh, really like the idea of hanging out with him and then slowly just be like I've, I've got to go sorry right. man sorry yeah let's make this a once a month kind of thing <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> and he's Italian what, what's, what's scarier than that you know uh, yeah absolutely um, the the confidence of those guys it's just <sighs> petrifying yeah but uh no i i didn't know anything about his personal life um i think the first things that would have popped in my head were just the power of his compositions and the the way he would you know brings these uh picture these stories to life mm -hmm. which on the one hand, 
truly, I mean, when you're a young spiritual person, what you are trying to do is recreate that initial feeling that you had and Mm -hmm. trying to read the Bible, for instance, and really get moved by it, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to read it like it's like it's a movie and dramatic. And so there's an appeal there. And I'm I don't want to just dismiss that as naive. Um, Mm -hmm. It's. It's incredibly powerful and effective. I'll I'll just say that um, at least. Uh, And then I think I was just trying to remember how I had even been taught about him in like an art history class. And I think generally just kind of by the time you get to the late Renaissance, you're, you're already kind of rushing on towards, okay, let's get to the impressionist, post-impressionist and modernist. So he's kind of, Hey, this, this wave is really cresting and yes, he was impressive, but um, you know, this is, this is really the peak before it all starts to calcify into the academic realist tradition. And so pretty, pretty quickly um, blown by and certainly didn't get any of the stuff you were, any of the subversiveness and the flagrance that, um, that he was putting into his paintings. So, right. Right. Cool. Well, I'm glad I could teach you something for once. Me too. Yeah. Because I did not want to prepare. There's a lot going on. I'm really busy uh, doing the dishes, walking into my backyard and strolling around 10 feet and then going back inside the house and then coming and looking at my email and then seeing how many people have died in Colorado and then uh, doing more dishes and then walking around the backyard some more. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's about what it looks like for me. I have a pretty arduous, um, walk in the morning, walk in the early afternoon, walk in the late afternoon schedule to adhere to. Yeah. And don't, Um, don't even get me started on naps. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's too much, but we make the sacrifices that we have to make. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's Caravaggio for you guys. Um, hopefully this convinced our skeptical viewers or listeners that the Renaissance is not a complete waste of time. Um, that there's actually some good stuff to learn. Yeah. All right, you, um, you Italian phobes. That's right. All you we know you're racist. all racists against Italians. Yeah. You that's think. something we know about the Magic Camp viewers, listeners. Yeah, they're all of well they're they're all uh evangelicals coming out of protestant stock and right scandinavian lutheran uh and they don't they don't like a spicy meatball they like a bland white fish yep well i mean most of our listenership is based off of your young life email list so you're not wrong about that (laughs) yep And uh, all right, just like just like on those emails, I, I'd like to remind everyone that Aslan is on the move. <laughs> yeah. Where's Bond? On that <laughs> note, um, this has been Magic Camp, a podcast about art and power for anyone with a little bit of extra time after school. Ben, what do we have on the docket? What's next? Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. 
Uh, I would say see everyone after school, but we're going to be yeah, conducting all education over Zoom now. So, Right. And all so extracurriculars. We'll yep. <laughs> all right. See you later. See ya. I'm Paul Anderson. Bay Anderson. See ya.